When I was 12 years old, I read Isaac Asimov's science fiction novel, Foundation, that had been written, had been published around the time I was born, in around 1950. This is Roger Meyerson, Economic Science Laureate. You're listening to Nobel Prize Conversations. That's a story in which the mathematical social scientists save the galaxy. It's a, one of those stories. And so that planted my mind that there might be something about mathematics and social science. Uh, but there's something in that that first passage about a young person who's coming out of graduate school and he's been doing research and reading all these, the current scholarship, and is now meeting for the first time great scholars who, had been read, who he or she had been reading about and the excitement of meeting them and being accepted by them as a junior member of their team. You just heard economic science laureate Roger Meyerson. I'm Fanny Harjestam, the producer of Nobel Prize Conversations. While it is exciting to be accepted by a scholarly team or field, Roger Meyerson also believes it's crucial to share ideas among different fields. Mathematics, for example, might not seem like an obvious tool for understanding politics or history, but Meyerson found that fundamental mathematical models are at their most useful when they can highlight connections between things that don't appear to be connected at all. For his contributions to what's called mechanism design theory, a branch of economics that looks at the design of institutions in situations where markets do not work properly, Roger Meyerson was awarded the 2007 Prize in Economic Sciences. He shared this with Leonid Hurwitz and Eric Maskin. The host for the Nobel Prize Conversations podcast is Adam Smith. Adam is the chief scientific officer at Nobel Media, an outreach arm of the Nobel Prize. This podcast series is brought to you with support from Riksbanken, the Swedish central bank. So let's talk with Roger Meyerson about the sci-fi novel that blew his mind as a young boy, why politicians should listen to scholars, and how Roger Meyerson's discovery of game theory was like love at first sight. It just seemed right. I was very interested in something you wrote in your biography for Le Prix Nobel, for the Nobel Prize website. And that was that adult interests tend to be rooted in childhood. Yes. Of course, I suppose it's true we're all formed by all the influences that hit us. But in a way, it's nice, but it's also a little worrying that what you're going to be when you grow up is kind of influenced so early. Um, that you, possibly that you don't have the possibility to change. Who knows? Anyway, I'd like you to talk about it a little. How, how were your interests as an adult influenced by your childhood experiences? Certainly, anyone who in, in any field has has had some success must in that field have brought a certain energy that probably is tapping things that go deep in, in his or her personality. I, I have said that uh, when I was asked by the Nobel Committee to write a brief autobiography, and I began to think about my life, I realized uh, things that I remembered from childhood really did fit into the agenda of questions that I found myself driven to pursue as an adult in my adult career. I specifically have memory of the, oh, the Suez crisis when I, I would have been five years old, and I saw political cartoons in the, in the Sunday newspaper where, you know, uh, the world was uh, 
was portrayed by a large globe with a face, and he was worried about nuclear weapons and coming from an international crisis out of the Suez crisis in Egypt and the roles of Britain and France and the United States and the Soviet Union in those days. It made me worry. I was a worrier as a child, and I, <laughs> and I dis- remember discussing it with my father, and my father tried to explain to me that the leaders of our world were very wise people, and uh, that helped me to uh, go to sleep that night and not worry so much uh, that, the, that they had the wisdom to handle these crises. And then I began to think, uh, well, maybe I wasn't completely reassured. Maybe I, I felt we needed to develop more wisdom. Did they really understand well enough? And uh, so part of a passion for studying game theory and, uh, as an applied mathematics student in college uh, was uh, that maybe understanding game theory would give us deeper insights into what causes conflict and how to manage it uh, and uh, help five-year-old children all around the world to have take more comfort in, in knowing that there is a really good understanding of the roots of conflict. I think when I was young, I remember people saying about nuclear weapons that uh, we understood the, uh, the atom better than we understood ourselves, meaning we were able to use our understanding of nuclear technology to make terrible weapons, but we didn't really understand how to have keep ourselves from fighting great wars. And uh, that suggested to me as quite early in my, in my adolescence that, um, one, that understanding the roots of conflict were, and the management of conflict were really important. And secondly, that the kind of fundamental thinking in physics that led to the discovery of, of atomic energy, that kind of fundamental thinking might be useful in the social sciences. And so I began reading mathematics and economics uh, as a student, and uh, and and the rest is is my life. Mm-hmm. Indeed, yes. I suppose some people sort of take refuge in physical sciences and mathematics as things that are dependable against the lack of dependability of social interactions. But it's very brave to think that maybe we can maybe we can do something to understand social interactions. Certainly, m- mathematical modeling in the social sciences isn't going to get better than mathematical modeling in the meteorological physical sciences, for example. Human society is always going to be complicated. The great successes of physics have been in rather simple uh, systems, and it turns out that nine planets rotating around a massive star, our our solar system, was something that Newton could uh, find a a relatively simple mathematical model that did a very, very good job of of, uh, accounting for for what was going on. But most systems that we look at are much too complicated, and certainly anything interesting in, in social science is more complicated than any model I can make up. Therefore, I'm never going to make a model and tell you what will happen for the next 20 years. But what I can do with my model is to come to understand cause and effect relationships by isolating them in their purest logic and understanding what kinds of factors are going to be important for what kinds of consequences. Uh, And I think that's the use of mathematical analysis in social sciences. And I continue to believe it is extremely useful, that it is valuable, that it's good that there are many of us doing it. There are many other things we need to study also. But I have a particular passion for this particular thing that we we people need to study. It sounds to me, reading your biography, as if you were... Um, and you use the word behaviorist now in a different context, but you were a well-behaved child. You were a, you were a good boy. <laughs> that- I tried to be. <laughs> <laughs> your relationship with your parents sounds like a very nice one. Yes. 
I was an old man of 66 years old, and two years ago when I still had living, two living parents. I, I lost them about, about a year and a half ago. Sorry. And, uh, I'm very uh, sorry. It's never easy at any time. But uh, one of the ways I'm extremely lucky is, is, is in that regard. Yes, I remember my father saying to me, no matter what age you are, you become an orphan when your parents die. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned earlier the, the conversation you had with your father about your worries about Suez. Yes. Did you have many conversations with your parents? It was something that was, that was something that at bedtime was, was common when I was four and five years old, or at least I remember it. I, uh, I have to tell you that in his fading years, there came in the last, at the end, a period when he began to worry about many things. What were people saying about him? He wasn't afraid of death, but he was very afraid of what the people down, down the hall in his retirement community might be thinking about him. And I, uh, I, t- I told him they loved him, and I tried to reassure him, but I said, you know, I'm just repeating to you things that you told me when I was five years old and you were right then, and I'm trying to, to remind you as, as, as best I can of what you taught me as a child. <laughs> you mentioned how you were switched on to a concern about how we could get a better understanding of how the world works and how we could perhaps better help our leaders make decisions. What gave you the clue as to what tools you should use to to get that effect? I mean, you turned towards mathematics, you then turned towards economics, but why? It's a good question. I, I think in any scientific undertaking, in any academic scholarship of any sort, uh, the question of how shall we organize our thinking, what analytical tools, what conceptual structure is going to be useful for understanding, for gaining the new understanding of these problems which we, which we need. I think uh, one's intuition about what are fruitful concepts and what are fruitful ways of organizing one's thinking is the most important aspect of, of scholarship. I suppose a lot of people have a sense of what's, a good, what's an important question in the world that we should understand better. That's part of it. But how should we approach it? When I was 12 years old, I read Isaac Asimov's uh, science fiction novel, Foundation, uh, that had been written, had been published around the time I was born, in around 1950. That's a story in which the mathematical social scientists save the galaxy. It's a, one of those stories. <laughs> and so that planted my mind that there might be something about mathematics and social science. Uh, and the very first section, about, I don't know, it's maybe 10, 15 pages, it takes place in this, this future galactic civilization, but it's a story about a, a new PhD going to a, he's, he's just been on the uh, galactic job market, and he's gotten his PhD in a university out in the provinces, and he's going to the big galactic capital where there's a great university, and he's working with uh, the great Harry Seldon, who lives at this, who's, who's, who's developing this magnificent uh, mathematical social science there. But there's something in that first passage about a young person who's coming out of graduate school, and he's been doing research and reading all these, the current scholarship, and is now meeting for the first time great scholars who'd been re- who he or she had been reading about, and the excitement of Meeting them and being accepted by them as a junior member of their team is absolutely true to the experience of scholars. It's part of the book that I love best as, as a description of what it's like to be a new graduate student with the excitement of research, uh, meeting the, uh, uh, the famous, the world-famous scholars and discovering that they're accepting you as part of generation to advance the field. That's a lovely part of the book also that I, that I would like to mention. And when I first saw an economics textbook in uh, in the middle of high school, I, I, it was very exciting. I got a copy of 
Paul Samuelson's uh, economics textbook. And the way he was thinking logically seemed so powerful uh, that I wanted to be an economics major. And uh, when I got to college, it was in my junior year in college, my third year in college, that I discovered something of game theory. Uh, Howard Rafa, uh, who should have been a Nobel laureate, had a decision analysis course, a, ma- a model on mathematical models of decision-making that seemed so fundamental. And, and he said, this is, this is the basic model, and he convinced us that maximization of utility functions, which economists assume is, is a practical way of thinking about how people make decisions in any situation. And then he said, when you put that model together and have multiple decision makers interacting with each other, that's called game theory. And he said, uh, there hasn't been much progress on that. Who was this economist that Myerson would have liked to see awarded with the prize in economic sciences? Howard Rafa, who passed away in 2016, was considered a pioneer in the field of decision analysis, an academic discipline that encompasses negotiating techniques, conflict resolution, risk analysis and game theory. He was also the founder of the public policy school, Howard Kennedy School, and the author of 11 books. At that time, in was 1972, he had, in 1957, written what was then probably the best, still, in 1972, still the best book on game theory. Well, I thought, this model is so fundamental, and if there has not been much progress on it yet, uh, we still don't understand how to analyze this model of, of interacting decision-makers, this, which is so basic and so general. Um, how could we understand anything? And I felt I had to put down anything else I had had taken a, a technical class in the engineering school, and, and the professor there said, would you like to write a senior thesis under my advice? And I said, first, I have to think about game theory. It's, it's so important. I can't do work in your area. So I, I just had to read it. And there was nobody who was really a game theorist in my university in those days, but I read the stuff on my own because it seemed so compelling. I don't know why I thought that. But why, why was that so compelling for me that I had to drop everything else? Let's stop for a minute to talk about game theory. Although the approach was pioneered by mathematician John von Neumann in the early 20th century, it wasn't until decades later that it was put at the heart of economics by another mathematician named John, John Nash. We'll return to John Nash in a minute. For Roger Meyerson, there were no regular courses on game theory at Harvard at the time, so he began to do independent reading on the subject, searching through the libraries for books and articles. But it just seemed right, and I have to say, I, I, one of the things I feel lucky about is having been born at the time when game theory had started, but, but had not really, well, it was still a, a work in progress. There's still more work to be done. There's fundamental work in game theory that, oh, I'm working on a paper right now that's very technical on the basis foundations of game theoretic analysis. But I think we now pretty much understand most of how to approach the analysis of game models, how to think about them, in the abstract. And now, so the fundamental new advances in game theory, there are f- far fewer of them waiting to be, to, be, to be had than there were when I first discovered the field in, as a student in the early 1970s. There's still a lot of work to be done in game theory on what are the right game theoretic models to apply to uh, various situations to gain the best insights. For that, you have to, there's an artistry. What do we want to focus on and what do we want to leave out of our mathematical model? But the basic question of, given a game model, which is a mathematical structure, how do you analyze it and say what kinds of behavior 
should be expected of people who are involved in this kind of situation, according to game theory. That Those analytical questions, those methodological questions, there was huge progress between 1972 and 1995, let's say. Mm. Um, since 1995, we a little progress, but there was less less needed. We, we, we sort of, we understand the broad analytical principles pretty well now, I think. So you hit it and contributed to a golden I got, time. I had an opportunity to be one of those who contributed. Yeah. John Nash really played a very important role in getting the whole thing started. And when he won his Nobel Prize, I got the enormous privilege of standing up and giving a speech to the American Economic Association in 1996 about why John Nash's contributions around 1950 are so important. And to be able to honor him in that way and take part in something that vicariously in that way that that happened when I was being born uh, was also a huge privilege of, of, of generational luck. We were talking about the, the the public understanding of game theory, and of course, for most people, I suppose John Nash is really the only thing they have to associate with game theory. Yes. Um, and you were lucky enough to call him a friend. Yes. What was he like? For 20 years, of course, in my life, I didn't know anything about game theory. I learned about it when I was about a 20 years old student. For about 20 years, uh, for about, there were about two decades in my life when I uh, studied game theory and John Nash was unavailable. It was like he was dead. He was alive, but he was mental illness meant he was not one of us. John Nash, who received the 1994 Economics Prize, invented and lent his name to the famous Nash Equilibrium. It's a concept used to analyze the outcome of the strategic interaction of many decision makers. It helps foresee what may happen if several people or institutions are making decisions at the same time, and if the outcome for each one of them depends on the decision of others. Basically, Nash showed that you cannot predict the result of the choices of multiple decision makers if you analyze those decisions in isolation. Instead, you have to ask the others and take into account their decision-making. And then suddenly, when I was in my 40s, uh, he, he won a Nobel Prize. He came back to us. Uh, I got to know him. I got to be a friend with him and talk with him. And that was, a, that was enormous. And after 20 years after that, I'm dividing my life into decades, <laughs> in, in, into decade pairs that are that by, by my relationship with John Nash. We lost him again, mm-hmm. and, 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 and we lost him. He died in an automobile accident coming from, from winning a, a major mathematics prize, and glory and tragedy, as always, were intimately entwined in his life right to the end. A movie was made about his life while he was still living, and the end was just as dramatic as anything that was used for, for that movie. It was strange. There was one thing I have to say. He he taught us that the cooperative game theory that was then in vogue in the 1950s when he was a student was the wrong way to think about things. That it didn't wasn't well rooted individual decision making, and he taught us to do non cooperative game theory. When he came back to game theory after recovering from mental illness. He was doing cooperative game theory. He, he seemed like the only one in the room sometimes who hadn't totally internalized the lessons of John Nash. He <laughs> taught us, but then when he came back to game theory, he often wanted to do things uh, the way he had been taught. When he was a student, he had a brash arrogance that led him to not listen. listen to, he listened to his teachers in, 
kind of a, a diffuse way, but ignored the details. When they told him to do cooperative game theory, he didn't, he didn't listen. But when he came back, it seemed like that was what he wanted to do. And that was very, un, very odd. Um, did it help? But it, it was magnificent to have him <laughs> as a colleague. Yes. Yeah. It was really important to me personally. Yeah. Thank you. It's special to hear that from you. People may have seen the, the, the movie Beautiful Mind. Mm. It's The director and the scriptwriter were very clear about the fact that they were using his life as an inspiration, but there's lots of things in the movie that are, are, are fictionalized. Uh, for example, in a movie, you have delusions have to be visual because it's a you know visual medium. Uh, but whereas John Nash was hearing voices, he was, it was auditory, not you know. But that's uh, there are many things that were fictional. But the emotion you get when you see the movie, the idea of a man grappling with important ideas, but also grappling with mental illness, and that the mental illness does not detract from his contributions to understanding. And the people in science who learned from him really valued him and were personally overwhelmed with joy at, at his return to us. That is true. And in some ways, if a movie conveys an emotional truth, that's sort of the, the best we can ask for from a, a medium that, that's, that's bound to be fictional. And Again and again, I'm struck by how social an enterprise research is. And yet, yes. and yet how the, the popular understanding of the researcher is the lone individual kind of having their great thoughts. But the friendship and the, the mutual support is... The desire to, to come up with ideas that other people will appreciate is what drives us. To do great scholarship, I certainly have to push my own ideas sometimes, <laughs> but I also have to be ready to listen to others, appreciate the importance of what they're doing, and help uh, to popularize it. I think one of the most important things I do as a scholar is when I see one of my colleagues at the university and I tell him or her about some brilliant idea that I just learned from reading or listening to somebody else. It's about sharing ideas. The way our profession works is that we encourage each other, and I want my colleagues to think that not only am I someone who can come up with good ideas on my own, but I'm also someone who can recognize other people's good ideas and help to be part of communicating them more broadly in, in the world. When you describe your path into game theory, into mechanism design, it sounds so wonderfully directed from, you know, in, in fact, traced from a five-year-old's conversation Yes, yes. To a, to a turning point in your third year at Harvard, etc. Sort of preparing yourself very well all along the way to make these great contributions. It must be every parent's dream to see a child who is so organized. Did you waver along the way? Or was it really as it sounds? <laughs> um, the truth is, I think my life is, is very unusual for having been so directed. I don't think there's anyone I know whose undergraduate uh, studies at college uh, were so related to his professional career. My major officially was applied mathematics, but I was always interested in economics. That meant my economics courses, which were in the social sciences division uh, and not in, and the math, applied mathematics was part of the, the natural sciences division in my university. So my economics courses counted as distribution. I, I think I had only one class ever in college, a history of religions class, that wasn't part of my technical training to be a professor of 
economics and uh, applied mathematics. I did a terrible thing. Your, your children should not do this. They should take distribution <laughs> courses. And my wife has often criticized me for, I often quote lessons I learned in that one humanities class I took, and maybe if I'd taken a second humanities class, who knows what great gifts I would have gotten from it. I'm an example of someone who fairly narrowly pursued his uh, his professional goals. I have to say, when I think back on college, I think that um, I wish I'd spent a little less time studying and a little more time getting to know some of the very interesting and <laughs> uh, people who were attending the same in- academic institution where I was studying <laughs> because they were, they, were, they were great people and I was spending too much time in the library. I guess when I think that, I think somehow it feels like learning the tools of mathematics and economic analysis were sort of inevitable. There was Even if I hadn't spent so much time studying them and as a 20-year-old, I would have learned them a few years later. But uh, it is true. I think a real life, a normal life, has more, more twists and turns than mine does. I've been very lucky. <laughs> you contributed hugely to the field of information economics. And yeah. as you said, you were awarded the prize for your work on mechanism design. But even in 2007, in fact, well, before then, you were turning from uh, mathematical approaches to the application of your modeling to, let's say, much more, would you say, wishy-washy territory, politics, foreign policy? Uh, Non-quantitative. My intuition is that Game theory is a very general, fundamental way of analyzing any kind of situation where two or more individuals are interacting, they have different goals, they have different information, and they have perhaps difficulty trusting each other. They want to communicate, they want to coordinate for their mutual benefit, but uh, they have some disagreement as to what they'd like to do, and they, they may have difficulty trusting, as I say. I think fundamental models are most useful when they help us to see connections between phenomena that are that we hadn't seen connected before, that is, that, that seem to be different. We're looking for new connections, fundamental principles that help us to unify our approach to diff- many different kinds of situations so that you can go into a new problem and carry with you lessons learned elsewhere. My intuition was that made reading of history particularly valuable for me. To study the problems of politics in classical Chinese civilization, for example, and the rise of Islam, the development of English political institutions from the time of Alfred the Great and from the years after William the Conqueror in the Middle Ages, political problems of, of antiquity. All of these things should be areas where we might hope that the more fundamental analysis that we've learned in game theory might help us to see connections. And so that's, I, I started doing that increasingly as it, in the 1990s. I, I became interested in political science, partly because I always thought game theory should be important for all social sciences, and political science was the next obvious candidate. I began thinking about voting, and I've done a lot of work using game theoretic models to try to say what are advantages and disadvantages of various electoral reforms, cha- mm-hmm. changing the way we, we vote in elections, the rules of the elections. But at some point when I began to read much more broadly, I realized voting has been an important part of politics only in a very small fraction of human history. Most of human history is about uh, nations and tribes and political organizations that didn't have formal elections. They had aristocr- aristocracy and monarchy and understanding 
human politics more general and the organ and voting was only a small part of it. And I've begun to realize it's the questions of trust. And in any political movement, uh, there are going to be leaders and the leaders get nowhere without support. And the supporters need to feel that they can trust the leader once empowered to uh, repay their support. Mm. And to me, that has become a fundamental principle because game theoretic modeling enables me to see it, see how, how it could be pervasively vital in politics at all levels in, throughout his human history. And perhaps I appreciate that a little better, just slightly better perhaps, than other historians or political scientists who approach the same issues. And that's something I've wanted to work on because I think there's an important contribution to try to make in, in thinking like that. I have written several papers which have been non-technical in the last uh, a decade or two. The work for which the Nobel, Pro- Nobel Committee cited me in, in, in awarding me, including me as a Nobel laureate, was all extremely technical, and it is a very fair question to say, yes, Professor Myers and we, we understand you know how to do certain kinds of technical analysis very well, but does that entitle you to uh, reason verbally without uh, formally making the game model that supports your conclusions. And I think that's always a fair criticism. I have to say, so far, people who have read my non-technical work have, have in general encouraged me and thought said it, it was conveying useful insights, which is the, the best thing you can say about anything. So I, I continue doing it. But I remain open to the question, please go back and write the game theory model that, that explains exactly uh, how you do this step. But I think that uh, there have been a few papers where I've tried to sketch those. I think those are less interesting for people to read than the ones where I simply try to justify the conclusion without explaining how I would translate this justification into a formal mathematical model. It certainly is on my mind all the time, though. Mm. Yes, of course, you don't want to overstep the boundaries. In all of, of academic discourse, we need to be very careful about critiquing each other. If I am a senior professor, does that enable me to speak with authority? The answer is no. My credentials and the certification I've gotten from the Nobel Committee in Sweden, for example, should make people think that I might be willing, worth listening to. And by the way, be, being considered worth listening to by anybody else is always a pr- great privilege. Um, but anything I say needs to be scrutinized and critiqued. Uh, errors of logic, errors of, of fact. We need to be open to criticizing that. That's how, how scholarship works. Friendship relationships uh, don't necessarily involve everybody criticizing everyone else, but that's what academics are supposed to do. And whether I was writing a new game theory model or a verbal discussion of of what we learn from from history, I rely on academic readers to read it critically. Yeah, and as Hayek pointed out in his banquet speech, the Nobel Prize is a very dangerous weapon to give somebody because it does mean that people will listen to them. And he um, sort of self-mockingly pointed out, of course, that it's a particularly dangerous tool to give to an economist who is liable to speak about anything. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, but, but in your case, this does not apply. But you're right to point out that people may ask the question, how come somebody who's been doing mathematical models is now writing, as you are, for instance, about the building of states and what model we should use what model countries should use for reconstructing states that have been yes. damaged by war, for instance, in Syria or Iraq, on first glance. It's, it's a long it, way from uh, mechanism design. It is a fundamental question, and mechanism design was, a, uh, was similarly fundamental. It was about 
what the Nobel Committee referred to by the title of mechanism design to me was a theory of a mathematical theory of mediation, and mediation is about uh, a person setting up a communication system. He's, he's helping people who have some disagreement and some problems in their relationship to communicate with each other, and the mediator has to plan how to what kinds of questions to ask each individual and how to res- how to respond to them. Well, that's the beginning of structuring a social relationship and certainly state building is, is about creating a political structure. The question of how to get from the path from anarchy to prosperity, uh, what are the first steps along the way is, is, is a fundamental question of social science and it is one of pressing importance in our time. I've been writing, reading and writing about colonial practice and colonialism was a form of state building. There's something fundamentally abnormal or wrong about people from one country taking responsibility from another country's politics. That should not be normal. The world is much better when people everywhere control their own government. But there are times when a political breakdown causes the suffering of anarchy and, and, and there's a humanitarian interest and there can be a practical interest of the rest of the world when, when massive numbers of refugees trying to escape from the horrors of anarchy and war, uh, when uh, failed states become bases for international terrorism, as all of the above have happened in, in recent times. Uh, and then in a very limited way, there is a need for the international community to be able to promote political stability. I, th- I should say, I think, when I think about the importance of this question, that both in Europe and America today, our political systems have been adversely affected by fear of refugees. The United States is debating whether to build a wall from the Pacific Ocean to the Gulf of Mexico because it's perceived as the only solution to refugees coming from, from anarchy in communities in in Central America. These countries in Central America are very small, and the alternative, if people believed that we could send in agents to help with foreign assistance and state-building professionalism help to establish law and order and a functional government that serves its people in countries like Guatemala and Honduras, then, then that would obviously be the right solution. And I believe it is possible, but the practical problems and in Europe, fears of chaos in Africa leading to massive uh, numbers of refugees only reminds people that the, the Roman Empire fell from a refugee crisis. Uh, or- I mean, this is all hugely relevant right now. Do you think people are listening to you? Do you think that you are, having, are being listened to by those responsible for deciding what they're going to do in countries that have been decimated by war or are falling apart for other I reasons? I have the privilege of talking to people who are in government, not necessarily at the highest level, some some intermediate levels, but relevant to this kind of work, who do this kind of think about these problems in government. Our, our policies ultimately are going to be driven by our political leaders who take advice from staff people like some of whom I, I have the privilege of talking to. But ultimately, they are also accountable to the population. And, and in recent years, American politicians have said, state building doesn't work. We should not even try to do it. We don't even want to think about it. Uh, So that has been a dominant theme in Washington, D.C. for some time. I think it's why uh, when we began to have a refugee crisis from state breakdown in some very small countries in Central America that's that's adversely affecting the the, the southern border of of the United States, that it's taken us a little bit of time for politicians to come back to the idea. They don't talk about state building. They they use other phrases. Uh, But that is ultimately what the interventions that they'd want to do that are needed could be described by, the term state building. But politicians have taken a while to get to that 
it is beginning to be part of the discussion, um, but very slowly. Obviously, my thinking responds as anybody's does to the politics of today and the headlines that we read yesterday and last week. But I try constantly to think about what's important, to identify what's important in solving our current problems by applying principles that should be should make sense in terms of the logic, the basic logic of a game theoretic model, and in terms of the principles of game theoretic modeling that have been, have proven useful for understanding how people have solved political problems and social problems uh, of organizing themselves throughout history and, and across civilizations. And that's been a question to which I have devoted my life and it has been a privilege to, to be able to actually make a living to do that uh, and by, by working as a professor in you know, university. That, but it seemed it was necessary, and I, somebody should be doing it. Lots of us should be doing it. There are other things that need to be done also. Uh, and I've been very lucky to be able to make, devote my life to this. I, sh- I should let you go. You've given me so much of your time. Thank you very much indeed. I suppose, though— Having discovered that mathematical social scientists can save the galaxy when you were 12, <laughs> life is always going to be a bit of a disappointment. You'll never quite get <laughs> I, I, I describe it with that way. I think that's an accurate description of the book. Um, the fact that we don't have a galactic civilization and the uh, facts of um, speed of light uh, bound on travel probably... Uh, a man has on, to know on, his limitations. Travel, though, probably yes. means we'll never have a galactic <laughs> civilization. But uh, it, is, it is an image, and it's an image that has always motivated me. It's, uh, it's, it's something that was worth thinking about. I know Paul Krugman says that he also became an economist because of reading Foundation, and I'm not sure how it should be a standard question on a, uh, on a survey, perhaps of when Nobel Prizes are given to economists. Check yes or no. Did, did, you, uh, did you draw inspiration from Asimov's Foundation? Glad to recommend it uh, to, uh, to, to your listeners. This podcast was produced by Phil Tinterland for Nobel Media. The host was Adam Smith, and the producer was me, Fanny Harjestam. Music by Epidemic Sound. Make sure to visit the official website, nobelprize.org, for more in-depth content on the laureate's awarded work. If you're passionate about the Nobel Prize, you won't want to miss a single episode of our podcast. Be sure to subscribe. We're available on Acast, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, GeoSarvan, Spotify, and many, many more popular platforms.